Happy holidays. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered, focused, decisive action and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on mentorship and leadership. My guest is corporate sales trainer, coach, lawyer, Sandy Chazelle. Today we talk about his book, The High Diving Board, How to Overcome Your Fears and Live Your Dreams, Conquering Fear and 10 Action Steps. This book also includes a dream journal for exercises. And Sandy is also offering a free 30-minute consultation on your business. What a way to start 2013, right? To be in touch with Sandy for the free consultation and to find out what else he has to offer for your business success, go to his website, sandychasselle.com. Again, happy holidays and have a blessed 2013. Sandy Shusepa, welcome back. How are you doing? Hi, Sabrina Marie. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, me too. Me too. And, I, and I'm looking forward to this. I always have a good time and think you do great work. And whatever I can do to help, uh, I want to I do. Well, thank you so much. We're talking about your high diving board, how to overcome your fears and live your dreams. But for those people who hadn't heard your earlier interviews, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got there. Well, okay, good. That's a good place to start. Uh, I am a coach and a trainer for people who are in some kind of service business and need to sell, and they're terrified of the word selling. And that includes people who will insist to me that they don't sell, attorneys, uh, financial advisors, uh, accountants, anybody in a profession. Uh, these are people that think that they're not in sales, and of course they are. And I work with them at whatever level they're at. A lot of what we do is not about teaching them new strategies, new techniques. It's about getting inside the inner game. You know what to do. Why aren't you doing it? And the way that ties into the book, The High Diving Board, it's about fear and how you deal with fear. Most of the time, that's the issue for professionals who are stuck or frustrated or they feel burnt out, even if they're successful. And a lot of the people I work for are doing well, but they reach a point where either they have no life or the the kinds of clients that they've accumulated over time aren't the kinds of clients they wanted, and they don't know how, or, or they think they don't know how to get to those clients. And my work is to help them see what they're not seeing, see how the world is occurring to them, and offer them access to an alteration of occurrence. Okay. Well, in terms of that um, helping clients, you had to have um, a background of overcoming some things. Can you um, briefly tell us how you came to write this book? What was the inspiration? Yes. In 1991, I was a successful and very, very unhappy attorney. And I really believed that I couldn't do anything else. I would say to people, you know, I want to stop doing this. Maybe I'll teach. Maybe I'll do something else. And they would say, you're making money. Why would you want to stop this? 
And I don't think anybody really understood just how much I disliked what I was doing. And I do believe that what it did to me is getting up every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to start a day that I didn't want to go through and doing that till midnight, going to sleep, getting up again the next day to do the same thing with a colorless life where the only joy was for my two little girls who I didn't get to see very much, six days a week. Uh, it Eventually, my body looked, uh, you know, I, I believe uh, that if people who get illnesses get them for one of the illnesses like cancer, for instance, which was my issue, uh, get them for one of three reasons or a combination of them. One is heredity and you can't do much about that. One is your immune system and you can't do much and uh, well you can do something about that and one is the environment and I recognize there are people who are very happy with their lives and they're not uh, and they get sick anyway but in my case I really think my immune system looked down the road and said well you have about 40 or 50 more years of this you might as well pull the plug on this now and at the end of 1991 I had taken myself, because I didn't know how to get out of practicing law, I had taken myself to uh, an address 50 miles away. I moved my family 50 miles away from the office, and I would commute every morning. And my goal, which was looking back at it, self-sabotage, was to make myself so miserable that I would actually go and do something else. That was that was what I was trying to accomplish. And on... on December 31st, New Year's Eve day, uh, I was taking my daughters to that location 50 miles away so they could visit their old babysitter while I went to do a real estate closing. And the car was very cold, so I reached down to find the heater button. I was in my wife's car that day. And while I was trying to find the heater button to see if the heat was on, I had inadvertently drifted into the left shoulder of the highway. And when I saw that, I started to move very gently back, but the front left wheel went into a rut and the car began flipping over and over and over again at 60 miles an hour in the median of this highway. And I, all I could remember saying is, please, God, don't take my children. If you're going to take anybody, take me. But somehow, good car, um, somebody was watching out for us that day. Um, it, it was, we all went home that night and we spent New Year's Eve huddled on the bed, on our bed in the master bedroom, all of us together, uh, thankful that we were all there. That led me to have myself checked out because I had had a problem that my doctor suggested I go and get a scoping and nobody likes that, but men in particular will do anything to avoid any kind mm -hmm. of intrusive examination like that. And I finally went to see what the problem was and it turned out to be colon cancer and I needed to have it operated on. 
that led to chemotherapy and radiation and um, several hospitalizations for pain so bad my children had to watch me as I crawled on the floor backwards trying to get away from it. Uh, the second operation, the complications from the, which really corrected complications from the treatment, uh, put me in a situation where I was totally disabled, uh, could not walk around the block. I went from a healthy 155 pounds down to 112 pounds. Uh, I needed to be walked around with someone supporting me just to take a walk, and I couldn't wander too far from the house because I was having all kinds of internal problems. And I survived and got better. And when I got better, after reaching the point where uh, the clients, even the most loyal clients, said, Sandy, I can't wait around for you. Uh, I, it's time for me to, you know, find another attorney. Uh, I ended up at the end of that year bankrupt, without work, still disabled, uh, and uh, looking at what kind of future am I going to have and really believing that they didn't get it all and I wasn't going to live much longer. And, and so I guess it didn't matter. But as I started to gain weight and get stronger, I had to face the fact that I have to rebuild a practice I hate or find something else. I mean, to have to go that low uh, where you're standing in bankruptcy court, where you're, you you can't stand too long in bankruptcy court to go have to go that low to make a change in my life that um, uh, should have been made years before. Uh, made me start to think, if I ever get out of this, uh, I want to tell people how I did it. And over the next four or five years, I struggled with all kinds of things, going to therapists, uh, trying to find something I liked. And I found a way out of the lowest point of my life by working through 10 steps that I picked up from reading every self-help book that I could find and listening to every audio program I could find. And those 10 steps became what uh, are the, what is the, the basis, the body of the book, The High Diving Board, How to Overcome Your Fears and Live Your Dreams. Wow. Now, after out, uh, overcoming, and because I know there was a, a, a long process uh, of overcoming a lot of, of different fears, what's maybe one or two, three, or maybe three things that you really took away from in terms of life in general? And what, what are some things you think about now that you, you know, you know, you just sort of say, oh, well, you know, this is part of life, but some some things that would have spazzed you out when you were that high-powered <laughs> attorney, and you're just like, oh, my God, <laughs> i got to get in touch with this. And, I mean, life becomes much more important. You're saying your daughters, you're thinking about your daughters. What are, what are other three things that, uh, you know, you were thinking about? I think there's more than three, but let me give them to you as they come to me. Okay. The, the first is the main lesson in the book. And that is that we all are afraid of something. 
part of being a human being is that you are going to fear things. And I don't care who it is, the most successful people. If you look at somebody like uh, uh, Barbara Streisand, you know, somebody who's a performer, one of the stories about her is that um, she would get sick to her stomach before she, every time she had to go on stage. Uh, and they had to wait for her to be ready to go on. And, uh, you know, whether the story's true or not, or urban legend, the idea is we're all afraid. And the first lesson is that it's okay to be afraid, but if you have something that's your dream, fear or not, you have to do it. And this ties into the whole idea of how we deal with fear. Uh, when you're a very small child, your mother's watching over you, and you put your hand up to the hot stove, and she says, don't touch that. And you feel her fear, and you internalize it. Don't step into the street. You're going to get run over. And you start to learn that whenever that fear factor, that feeling of fear, the, the tension in your stomach, the butterflies, the, the perspiration on your hands, whenever you you get any of those symptoms or you hear that little voice inside you saying, back off, back off, um, what you do, what we learn to do is back away. And basically, it's it's not okay, back away. And one of the pieces of the puzzle that I had to put together was that's wrong, but that's not fear doing it. It's our response to fear, and that response to fear is a learned response. Now, when we're little, that response probably saved our lives. But when we're adults and we get that feeling because the boss just yelled at us or we get that feeling because we want to change careers or because we want to ask someone for a sale or because we want to ask someone for a referral, as an adult, when you get that feeling, the it's not okay back away response is the wrong response. And the lesson, and I can call this the second lesson was since it's a learned response, it can be unlearned and replaced with the first one, which is it's okay to be afraid, uh, but if this is your dream, um, then fear or not, you have to do it. And knowing that you could change that if you did something, anything to change it was a great revelation to me. So that was the second thing, uh, the idea that that Oh, fear makes you paralyzed is just a reaction to something we feel. There's another urban legend, uh, a story about Bruce Springsteen, uh, who was asked when you have to step out in front of an audience of 50,000 at Yankee Stadium or something like that, uh, which is a lot more than 50,000, uh, do you ever get nervous? And he said, no. And the reporter said, uh, no, I mean, uh, even though there's 50,000 people out there and everybody's going to see you and you can make a mistake. And he said, no. She said, well, what does happen? And he says, well, my palms get sweaty, I get butterflies, and then I know I'm ready. And the idea there is, yeah, okay, it's an interpretation of the feeling. And if you always interpret it as stop, 
then you haven't learned the lesson that it's okay to have that, but you have to go do it anyway. So, so that really ties in with the second thought that you can learn a new approach to it. And then the third lesson I learned, if you were asking for three, is that it's not that difficult to make the change if you do the right things to make it. And so slowly over the four or five years when I started to recover, I started to find the right things to do that made the difference for me, that made me work despite the fear that made me work even because of the fear. You you give me something that makes me feel afraid, and if it's not dangerous, I'm not going to hurt anybody, and it's something I really want to do. I'm going to do it because it made me scared. And that's a great change uh, for me. That, that was something that uh, really altered the way I live my life. Now, the, the third lesson uh, for me that was an eye-opener, has to do with the high diving board itself, and that became a symbol for me. Uh, when I was recovering and I was figuring out what I wanted to do, I expressed to a friend that I really I'm doing this, and I'm much happier than I was. And at the time, it was I was running some seminars. I had started a seminar business. I had started coaching. I didn't really know what coaching was, but I was doing a kind of consulting where people were helping themselves, and I learned that that was coaching. And I expressed to him that I'd really like to be a motivational speaker, something now that I've done many times. And he said, well, why don't you just do it? And I started to do the fear thing. Oh, I don't think I'm good enough, and I don't have enough material, and I don't think people would listen to me. And he said, well, you know what I'm hearing? He said, what I'm hearing is that you're stuck somewhere in the middle. And um, I didn't know what he meant, but we kept talking about what we were going to do that summer. And I started to tell him about a place not far from here called the Quarry that has three diving boards and how I always avoid the lower board where all the kids gather up and they all do, you know, jumps and, and dives from that board. And I go to the one that's less crowded, uh, and that's the um, middle board, which is about eight feet high. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, but what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to climb to the 25-foot board, but I'm terrified of it. And he said, you know what I, I was talking about being stuck in the middle? That's exactly what I'm talking about. You want to dive off the high diving board, uh, but you end up diving off the middle one. How many times in your life have you done that? And I really took a look at my life and said, oh, my gosh, I've done that my whole life. I always want to get past the low board, um, but then I stop at the middle, and I don't go for the high board. Well, it was only symbolic, and I don't necessarily buy into symbols, but I took my daughter that day to the quarry, climbed up to that high board, and as terrified as I was, and believe me, the voice inside of me was yelling, it's not okay, back away, it's not okay, back away, it's not okay, back away, you're going to be dashed to pieces on the rocks below you. 
I got myself out to the end of the board, and I realized I can't go back. I was too terrified to turn around. And so I stood there for about five, maybe ten minutes, and finally I said, well, I can't go back. My feet won't work. It it was as if they were embedded in concrete. My feet won't work. (laughs) The only thing I can do is go forward. And I leaned forward, and you could call it a dive, but I kind of fell off the board uh, and went straight down into the water. And when I came up, it was the best, most exhilarating feeling in the world. And I was so amazed that uh, I had done this despite the terror, and it really was terror, that I started up again just to make sure I could do it. And I got out on the board and the same heart-pounding palpitations, don't do this. What are you, crazy? You you made it through once. Why would you try again? And I got to the end, and this time it only took me a few seconds, and I dove again, and I had done it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the lesson for me is that I had always uh, had enough courage to get past that first board but I never went for what I really wanted. And the exhilaration and the joy for going after what you really want in your life, in your business or anything else, became the thing that compelled me to sit down and start writing that book. Cool. Now you're talking about the different steps and finally getting the the opportunity to to get on that board at uh, 25 feet up in the air. And um, I thought this would be a great time to talk about one of the um, the chapters that really got to me was the obstacles, you know, and the other excuses that people can make for not really going for their dreams. (laughs) They get an obstacle and it makes them even more afraid. Yeah, people uh, get mad at me when we talk about those obstacles and roadblocks and hardships, and uh, I labeled that particular step in other excuses (laughs) (laughs) because they said, well, that's not an excuse. I really uh, don't have money, or I really can't do that, or I really do have a sick parent, or I really do have, and they're saying, no, none of these things are excuses. And I like to look at uh, historical figures who overcame huge odds to uh, get what they wanted, to get where where they felt they were successful. And someone says to me, well, gee, I can't do that because, and I don't care what the because is, there can only be three things that really are holding you back. One is you don't know what to do. Two is you know what to do, but you're afraid to do it. And three, and this is the most important one, and really the other two go away when you've got this one down. You haven't committed to doing it yet. You haven't really decided to do it. And people will fight me on this, but but that's really the truth. If I'm committed then I'm going to make something happen. And I'll give you a great example, Sabrina Marie, because uh, I've used this. I learned this from uh, one of my coaches, and I've used this in my talks. Someone tells me that uh, I want to uh, get five new clients this month, let's just say for argument's sake. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, uh, I tell you what, 
uh, will you, do you think you'll make it? Well, if I go by my history, I've never gotten more than one or two. I said, why, I'll say to them, well, what would get you to five? I said, how about this? Suppose that, uh, I give you a check for a hundred thousand dollars and tell you when you get the five, you can cash it. Uh, but you gotta get the five within the month. Mm. They say, you're on, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And I say, wait a minute. So now you're committed to do it. Why do you need that to be committed to do it? Suppose I take that hundred thousand away. Now you can't do it. What would you do differently now? And they start telling me I would call these people and I would do this and I would get in touch with uh, this guy. And and I say, yeah, that's great. Why do you need that to make that happen? And what I believe is if you're committed, then the first thing that happens is you are going to do it anyway. It's okay to be afraid, but uh, I've got to do this because I've got that 100000 waiting for me, and, and that's that's what I've got to do. And if you don't know how to do it, you're going to figure it out. You're going to read a book. You're going to find a mentor. You're going to find somebody to help you do it. So when I say that these obstacles, roadblocks, hardships are excuses, they are. Helen Keller was deaf and blind, and she became a renowned motivational speaker and author. Mm-hmm. So if someone says to me, well, I'd really like to write a book, but uh, I, I, you know, this is happening and that's happening, um, uh, that uh, to me is this is about excuses, and I call the excuses in the book, but but I do this with my clients as well, the butt monster, B-U-T, butt monster. The butt monster is a creature that our parents <laughs> gave us as a pet when we were very little, and we fed it and nurtured it, and uh, it grew up as we grew up, and it became more and more powerful, and we put it at the gate of what I like to call our safe neighborhood because I don't really think we're in a comfort zone. Some of us are miserable. It's not comfortable, but we won't go outside those gates. So I like to call it the safe neighborhood. And whenever we get too close to the gate, the butt monster throws in uh, phrases like, well, I'd really like to do that, but, um, or, uh, you know, I-, I would definitely go back to college, but... Or um, another word, the uh, phrase he likes is, if only, uh, if only I didn't have this, I would do what I really want to do. And if only this hadn't happened, I would do what I want to do. And it's all about excuses, all those obstacles in our way. I can't see, I can't hear, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too thin, I'm too fat, I'm too this, I'm too that. It doesn't matter. Those are all things that we put the butt monster in charge of to keep us inside the gate. Mm. Now, this butt monster, you hear it all over, and it's called mediocre thinking. Yes. (laughs) Because we make make excuses for just about anything we really don't want to do, but if it's something like, you you just mentioned the guy and you mentioned uh what a hundred thousand dollars and when you know what when you were saying that I was thinking wow with five clients he had the potential of actually making more than that hundred thousand dollars of course and uh-huh. he didn't see it his way yeah and, and that's the amazing thing and when I say what would you do differently they have this whole list of things they would do well why aren't you doing them now so 
you have this guy who's uh, motivated by the $100,000, and I'm saying to him, well, wait a minute, why do you need that? If I take that away, why won't you do those activities that you just told me you would do if the $100,000 was there? And they look at me and say, well, you know, I guess it's because, you know, I'm not sure it's going to work for me. Uh, But whatever they say isn't the truth. The truth is I'm afraid and I haven't committed to fix that. It took me five years to commit to fix my life, so I totally get it. But to deny that that's what's really going on is just wrong because it's about make the commitment that you're not going to let fear stop you. Make the commitment that you're going to go after whatever it is you dream of having, and then you'll find the way to do it and mm-hmm. the means to do it. So someone says to me, hey, I, you know, I really don't have, but I, you know, but I don't really, I really don't have money. And I say to them, yeah, and so now we've got to work around how to fix that. Or I really do have a sick parent. And I say, yeah, so whatever you're telling me is going to make it that much harder for you. But you're not deaf and you're not blind. Mm-hmm. And so however hard it is, and I know you've overcome some amazing health issues, and it's the same thing. Somebody will use those issues as an excuse not to succeed. So they don't like me saying excuse, but it's there. Getting back to the uh, butt monster, there's another word that people use that is basically I call um, most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time, try is a lie. (laughs) Can you talk about that when they say, well, I'll try to do, I'll try to lose weight or I'll try to get to the market today or I'll try. Now, there's some circumstances that can prevent you from doing that, but not all the time. Yes. It's not right that uh, when when somebody says try, they're not really committing to anything. Mm. They're basically saying, mm, "It's I'm not going to do it. And when I point out, no, 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 I'm really going to try. <laughs> and uh, it always reminds me of Star Wars where Yoda is in the swamp and he says to Luke, lift that ship out of the swamp. And Luke says, well, I'll try. And he says, do or do not. There is no try. Mm. You, you can't try to pick up a pencil. You either pick it up or you don't. And I had this discussion with a client today, Sabrina Marie, so it's sitting fresh in my mind. We talked about something he had tried once or twice, and it didn't work, maybe three times, and it didn't work. So he moved on to something else. And what he had tried is something that other people have tremendous success with. It had to do with seminars. And uh, and he said, you know, I tried this and I tried that, and it didn't work. And, uh, of course, uh, the alarm goes off for me when we start the word try. And the discussion I had is, do you remember, and you probably don't, but I want you to remind, I want to remind you, you can see any little child with this, a toddler that's trying to get up and walk. And mm-hmm. they get up and they're wobbly on their feet and they fall on their butts. 
But then they get up again and they try again and they get up again and they try again and then they take that first step and they fall and then they take the step again and they fall and then they get two steps and three steps and the mom and dad cheer them on and and then they take four or five steps and then they're walking. If every child after one or two times trying to sit up and ending on his butt said, well, that's it, I try to walk but it just doesn't work, none of us would be walking. And if we just carried that into adulthood and instead of saying I tried, persist with it and keep going uh, and keep tweaking it and keep looking for a way that it would work, eventually we would find the things we want. In the book, I talk about 10 steps taking uh, 10 steps to get you from stuck here and afraid to where you really want to be. And the tenth step is about persistence. It's persist until your dream comes true. And most of us try three or four times and we stop. The people who succeed didn't stop at three or four. They didn't stop at 50. They didn't stop at 100. They kept doing it until they got where they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're 100% right. Another thing that you do mention in the book that I think is really convicting, identifying the payoffs for your inaction. Because there, oh. there are many people who get these books, they'll get the tapes, as you said, that you listen to the tape. But you've got to move your behind and do something. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I was hoping you asked me about this because this is my favorite. This is what most of us do we do not recognize that the attention that we get for failing the attention we get for trying and not actually doing is so powerful that there's a little part of us and sometimes it's a big part mostly it's a little part of us that would rather keep whining about it and saying I can't do it or I tried and it didn't work then actually go and fix it and in the book I use two examples one is a woman who for years and years is crying about not being able to lose weight and there's a secret part to that where if she did actually do something and actually lost the weight now there would be a strong fear that when that happened, once people got used to it and stopped complimenting me, what would there be for me to talk about? Where would the where would I get any attention? Now I'd just be another one of those women that has managed to solve her weight problem. And the attention is powerful. And people, again, this is another place where they'll say, no, 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 that, that's not me. Uh, I actually, in the book, do a dialogue with an attorney that I was coaching who just kept telling me no matter what I said uh, I can't get clients I don't have clients I don't get referrals I can't and everything I suggested is oh I tried that it didn't work and uh, well why don't you try this oh that didn't work and why don't you try this oh I did that and that didn't work and it was clear that he didn't want to change it. He wanted attention for not being able to get clients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whoa. That's powerful. So here's a guy that probably in his heart really wants to have a thriving practice, and his 
need for the payoff, the attention he gets by complaining to everyone how that's not working, is working against him on so many levels. First of all, who would want to hire someone that talks about how he's so unsuccessful he can't get clients? Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, there's all that attention. Oh, poor Larry, you're not getting clients. I know you've tried everything. It's just too bad. Uh, and way too powerful, and some people just don't want to face it. That is what's going on in their lives. Wow. Now, that's really powerful. Yeah, really, right? It's You, know, you could solve your problem if you let go of that need uh, to get attention through not doing it. I'm a smoker. I, I'm not, but let's say I was a smoker, so I'm smoking. And yeah, there's a real addiction factor to it, and there's a psychological addiction factor to it. But there's also the attention you get for telling everybody about how I try to quit, but I can't. Mm, well. And that is a small element in almost every case where someone is stuck. Wow. Now, an ending... I wanted you to talk a bit about, uh, you know, people who are just on the cusp and even maybe they've uh, started to live their dream a bit. And then they, you know, people that slip back. I've seen that happen. Have you? Oh, yeah. And uh, one of the things in the book, when we when I talk about step five, identify what you're afraid of, I refer to them as the seven paralyzing fears. And the last in the list is the fear of success. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, how could you be afraid of success? And one of my answers is that I believe that that's more powerful than the fear of failure. Because if I was really afraid of failure, I would back so far away from failure that I could, that could never happen. What we're really afraid of in many cases is success, and it ties in with the idea that uh, I'm here. Can I sustain it? Half of the clients that, that I work with reach a point where they're doing much better than they were before, and now they start to question whether that's going to stay. And they start to go backwards and do some of the old things they did that didn't work just because they're so afraid it's not going to last. Then there are some people who reach that point and they feel they got promoted. Their friends didn't get promoted. They used to have these great friendships and now they're being ignored and they almost want to go back. And so they start doing things that were bad habits to self-sabotage without realizing that that's what's going on just because they're so afraid that their success is going to pull them out of the community, that it's going to isolate them. And that ties in with other of the seven seven paralyzing fears because people are afraid of being rejected, being an outcast, being alone. And so here I am, successful, and I'm afraid it won't last, and I'm afraid that people are going to treat me differently, and I'm afraid that the territory is going to be so unfamiliar, and I'm going to be so outside of my safe neighborhood that I do something that gets me running back inside the gate. Wow. Whoa. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. So you, you wonder how you see very successful people who get to a certain 
I guess, plateau, and yet they go back to the old neighborhood, and you wonder, well, what is that about? Why would they want to, you know, go back to something so negative? Yeah, I'm scared. And if you look at some of the really what we call successful people that have drug problems and pickpocket problems and, you know, the Lindsay Lohan issue, <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when you when you look at that, some of that is driven by I've reached a point where I'm afraid that I'm so high uh, and, and I'm, I'm just faking it. This isn't real. This isn't really me. And I need something to make me feel better. Wonderful. What's next for Sandra Chiselle? Wow, great question. What's next for me? Well, I love what I'm doing, uh, which is mostly coaching individual professionals, people who've been fairly successful, but they're not where they want to be. So maybe other people think they're doing great, but they don't see that. They don't feel that. I love that work, and that's about half of what I do. And the other half of what I do is actually go into firms where there are professionals like financial advisors uh, or insurance agents or attorneys and do the a part of it where I don't know, you know, I told you there were two parts. One is that I don't know what to do and the other is that I know what to do but I'm afraid to do it. Well, I make sure they have the tools on the I don't know what to do side uh, so that that can't be used as an excuse. And then really it is all about are you committed or not. And the ones that are committed are successful. The ones that aren't, aren't. And I love that work, so I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, I'm also starting a third book. The second book is Become a Client Magnet, 27 Strategies uh, to Boost Your Client Attraction Factor. And the third one will probably be uh, more of a how-to as well with some of the details that I teach people that I've really never put into a book. But any opportunity that I get to do motivational speaking to actually get people to have an alteration of how the world is occurring to them uh, and improve their lives that way, that's what I look to do. That's the future for me. What's your website? It's Sandy Chasselle, S-A-N-D-Y-S-C-H-U-S-S-E-L dot com. They can get um, both of my books on the website for anybody that wants your listeners. I, I know uh, would uh, at least um, consider this one if they're stuck. And what I'd like to do too, Sabrina Marie, is if somebody contacts me at sandy at sandychasselle.com and wants to have a conversation, uh, I don't do free coaching, but I would, for your listeners, I would waive any fee and talk to them about their situations to see if I can help them right there on the spot. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming back with us. I really appreciate this. This has been pretty fun. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for me too. Thank you for having me back again. I hope I help somebody out there. The whole point of this book was making it so that nobody has to wait five years to change something he's unhappy about or she's unhappy about in her life. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thanks again.